I'm Jeff Cohen. If the last name Wall sounds familiar, it's because I interviewed Rabbi Greg Wall, affectionately known as the Jazz Rabbi, in April of 2022 about his journey to Jewish observance. Today we have the privilege of hearing from Greg's wife, Rona, who has her own unique story to share. From early conversations with Hashem to a traumatic accident that changed everything, Rona and Greg, separately and then as a couple, grew towards Orthodox Judaism. Rona, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you, Jeff. So happy to be here. And I always love having husbands and wives. Sometimes we interview them together, but even when they're separate, we have a chance for the wife to fact check everything that the husband said in the previous interview. So this is your chance to right any wrongs. Okay. All right. So let's let's dive into the questions. I think in your situation, it would be good to talk a little bit first about your parents to set some context about the heritage that informs how your story unfolds. Okay. My mother was born in Brussels, Belgium in 1929. My dad was born in New York, so he was here. But she had to uproot from a very comfortable upper middle class life in Brussels, as you can imagine, when the Nazis were coming and they got away, but they left everything. They traveled to the south of France, got on a packed ship to Casablanca in Morocco and spent two years in a refugee camp there not suffering, not a concentration camp, but still poor, and two years waited to get their visas to get on a ship to come to Ellis Island. So my mother's reaction to all of that was to really want to assimilate and fit in in the new country. She came speaking only French and Yiddish at age 12 to Brooklyn, quickly learned English, and grew up as an American girl in New York. She and my father were actually neighbors in Borough Park and knew each other when they were younger, but then were not together until later in their 20s when they re-met and got engaged. And when you said your mother wanted to assimilate, does that mean that before she came to the United States, her family was closer to Orthodox Judaism or traditional, or how would you describe the family before they came to the U.S.? Good question. They actually were more observant. My grandfather, her father, was a chazan. And she came from a very religious family originally in Poland, in Warsaw. She was the youngest of at least 13 kids, uh, many of whom did die in the Holocaust. Unfortunately, just very briefly, I'll say that my mother was the victim of another trauma, which was that her parents didn't have a good marriage. So this Chazan grandfather of mine, who was supposedly a religious man, was not a good husband at all. He was known as a charlatan. The best thing he did was get them out and to America, and then he abandoned the family. So once they got settled in Brooklyn, he took off and left and remarried another woman and went to California. And I didn't know him until I was in my 20s. I met him again. So my father, my mother had to recover from being you know, abandoned by her father, not, not only an immigrant, but also the victim of a, a family breakup. It was very hard. So then at the time that your parents meet, how would you describe where they're holding religiously? They were very strong cultural Jews. They identified themselves as Jewish. They felt it was important to marry someone Jewish, have some sort of a Jewish home, but they were not religious. My parents, from the days that they were young through all their lives, identified themselves as agnostic. But when I was 10, the first 10 years, 13 years of their marriage, they didn't affiliate anywhere. When they had children, myself and my younger brother, they joined a reform synagogue. So that they were identified as secular reform American Jews, probably American before Jewish. 
And you just brought yourself into the story, talking about kind of those early years. So where does your story begin? You mentioned your parents meeting in New York. So is that where you were born and raised also? Yes. They were living in Queens when they got married, and I was born in Manhattan, lived in Queens for 10 years, and then they moved to the suburbs of Westchester County and joined a reform synagogue where I very happily went to Sunday school. And they will they would have told you the same thing that I, I always soaked up anything Jewish that came our way, but it was very, very little in those early years of my life. Now I said something in the introduction about early conversations with Hashem, and I always find it interesting when I'm talking to somebody who wasn't raised religious, why do they even know anything about this idea that you could have a conversation with Hashem? Because my experience going to a Jewish school, it wasn't so much about God, it was about history and arts and learning Hebrew, but not necessarily forming a connection with Hashem. Why do you think you found your way to those conversations, even though you weren't necessarily being educated in that? Yeah, it's, it's so interesting to me. I've always wondered why I found myself so spiritual and yearning for that. When I was 13, and it wasn't connected to Judaism, I just wanted something so badly. What does every little 13-year-old girl want? You want a boy to like you, a certain boy. So for whatever reason, in my heart of hearts, I just prayed to Hashem, to God. I didn't call him Hashem. I didn't know the word. But I asked God to please make this boy call me or want to go out with me. And I said to God, for whatever reason, if he does, I'll thank you for the rest of my life. (laughs) And guess what happened the next day? He called me. A week later, I couldn't stand the kid anymore. (laughs) But I was a good, honest little girl, and I had to keep thanking Hashem for giving me what he wanted, what I wanted, God, at the time. And around that time, I was going to Sunday school, as I said, and I don't think I, I don't even know if I connected God with Judaism. I just know that I started talking to a God, and I also enjoyed Sunday school, learning Hebrew and Jewish songs and going to temple on Friday night after dinner for the Onik Shabbos and the, you know, watered down Marev prayers. And let's be clear, for Greg's sake, that the boy you were praying about, that you wanted to call you and then did, and then you couldn't stand him, is not Greg. That's somebody else from childhood. That's right. Very good. Okay. Absolutely. Right. That's important to know. Otherwise, it would seem like you had a marriage to someone for many years that you couldn't stand, but that's a different person entirely. Well, there are stories (laughs) where you don't like somebody and then you realize you do like them, so that could have happened. But no, I, I had no idea who Greg Wall was until I was well into my 20s. All right, so let's continue your story now, going into the high school years, heading towards college. You've introduced this idea that you're talking to Hashem, and you've had some experience through Sunday school. So what role is religion playing in those later teen years as you head towards the college years? The role was the object of my searching. I had lots of friends who were Christian and Catholic growing up in high school. My parents moved to this suburban town way up in York, in Westchester County called Yorktown Heights, I was in public school. I was one of single-digit Jewish people, mostly Catholics and Christians. I used to sing Christmas carols with my friends and go to their houses for Christmas. But I was always interested in learning about all the different religions. And my mother always said, you have to marry somebody Jewish. But of course, I wasn't even around any Jewish people. It was well before I was interested in getting married, so that didn't really matter so much. But through my high school and then college years, I was exploring different religions. I always felt yearning and seeking for more contact with a God or with spirituality. My friends and I would go hiking in the mountains. And of course, I loved being in nature. And in college, I was exposed to yoga and meditation and tried some Eastern religions. Nothing really stuck. But that was the journey. That was the process. And to me, I enjoyed Judaism, but it was the Reform Temple, 
I heard about some Orthodox cousins, but my parents didn't get along with them. They were the least favorite relatives. They were narrow-minded and judgmental and whatever, and, and we were not cl- as close to them as we were to all my other secular relatives. I've heard that story a few times that when there's a family that is primarily secular and then there's one little pocket of the family that's Orthodox, they're viewed as the closed-minded ones who just don't get it. And then as someone goes on their own journey, they start to think, oh, maybe they were right all along and it was the rest of my family that didn't understand. Yeah, I mean, we're going to get to this, I'm sure. But that one family, I, got, I ultimately became very close to them. And of course, they saw my father as closed-minded and narrow-minded, right? Because he was against Orthodox Judaism or anything Jewish and God and wouldn't hear of it. So Now, you talked about the college years and the exploring that you were doing. You didn't say, though, where you went to school and what you were maybe studying, what you thought you would do career-wise. I was for undergraduate studies at SUNY Oneonta, upstate New York, majoring in psychology. My interest was always psychology. I then took a year off after I graduated, worked in a group home just to see what graduate degree I wanted to get. There are so many options in terms of helping people and the helping professions. But I learned in that year that I wanted to be a social worker and get an MSW. So I then went to the University of Kansas for my master's degree. I wanted to go somewhere outside of New York, somewhere different, applied to Boston University, but then realized I'd be in debt my whole life just to pay for that small degree. So my uncle, I had a young uncle, my father's very young brother, was teaching at the University of Kansas, and they had an accredited program. It sounded like a very cool place to go. So I picked up and went to Kansas for my MSW. I could see wanting to get out of New York, but I never would have guessed you'd say Kansas. There are a lot of ways to get out of New York without going to Kansas, but now I see the connection and how you were drawn there. That was the reason. It was a a wonderful couple of years because I grew very close to my uncle and he was starting a family at that time. And so I had that support. The first friend I made when I went there was Tamara Hansen, who was a Bible Belt Christian, and we started studying the Bible together. And eventually she left religion and I became an Orthodox Jew. (laughs) Now, is this around the same time when you're in graduate school that the the accident happens? Is that the moment in your life where this enters the picture and whatever you want to share about that moment? Sure. In the second year of my studies and as a social work student, we get internships where we, we do a field placement and we travel to a community agency to practice the work. I was commuting from Lawrence, Kansas to Topeka. And as you can imagine, Kansas is not so prepared for snowstorms. It doesn't snow there very often, but as Hashkacha Pratis would have it, I was traveling home one evening from Topeka to Lawrence in a very big snowstorm. I was not afraid to drive in snow. I was careful and comfortable doing it because I grew up in New York. But another person who was not only uh, not so careful, he was drinking in that snowstorm. He was going the opposite direction on the highway, flew over the median and hit me head on. And um, I had some serious injuries <laughs> at this point in the story, I always say, but I, I lived, <laughs> I got, I recovered, put a little damper in my education and my life at that time, broken bones, some cuts on my face. I had stitches on my face. I had a punctured lung, a broken collarbone. Should I say that this is the beginning of the Balas Chuva story, I guess, but it's the Gamza Latova story because out of this somewhat challenging accident, I wouldn't say it was so tragic, thank God, nobody did die in it. And But I, uh, being the good Jewish uh, practical person and with the help of my parents and their friends, we sued the guy who hit me because it was not my fault at all. 
And so two years later, at the age of 24, I was back in New York. I received a whopping $50,000. Before we get to what you did with the money, what was the recovery process like? How long were you laid up either in a hospital or at home? And also, I just want to tie it back to the conversations you said you were having with Hashem at a younger age. Were there moments when you were in bed and recovering, asking God, you know, why did this happen to me? Why was I put in this situation? What am I supposed to learn from having this accident? Uh, Not exactly the latter. I don't even recall an ongoing dialogue with God. I certainly believed. I believed in a God, and I'm sure I spoke to God throughout my life. The recovery, it was just weeks to a couple of months. I did have a badly broken ankle, so I was on crutches. And it wasn't until I started to use the crutches after surgery to my ankle to repair the broken bones that we discovered that my collarbone had been broken. So then I did come home from the hospital in a wheelchair, but that didn't take very long to heal. Prior to that, I had the punctured lung, but a chest tube healed that naturally. So I didn't need surgery, thank God. I wasn't asking meaning of life questions of why this happened to me, really. I I think I was grateful to be alive. I was fine. And so the accident happened in January. It only delayed my graduation by the summer. I was supposed to finish school in May, and I had to stay in Kansas until August to finish up what I had missed. I came back. My plan was to come back and work in New York and got a job. And then becoming my goal in life was to be a therapist. I am now a psychotherapist. I have been for 40 years since then. So every good therapist, I might say, should be in therapy herself. And so in my own soul searching, just psychologically, and there were issues that I had to work out between myself and my mother and my relationship with her. She grew up a very fearful person, as I said, not believing in God, not ever dealing with the trauma of her early childhood, which probably has something to do with me becoming a therapist. So in my soul searching and just psychological healing, I decided, wow, I heard this sort of intuitive voice inside me that said, go to Israel to see what it means to be Jewish. Like just in terms of continuing to improve my own life, I wanted to go to Israel. I went to a very intense weekend workshop. This is the 80s we're talking about. And there were all these fun uh, things like EST and, you know, all these self-growth programs coming out and retreats. And I did a retreat that taught me the difference between rational thinking and sometimes our thoughts are limiting and make us afraid to do things. And that if we listen to our intuition, great things can happen. And I think in some way I connected that intuition to maybe God guiding my life. And it was that intuition and God that was giving me this very strong message to go spend some time in Israel. And so that connects to the monetary settlement. We're talking about someone in their early 20s. There's a lot of ways you could choose the choose to spend the money, invest the money. And you said, I'm going to use a portion of this to go to Israel. Right. But it, it wasn't necessarily a religious growth exploration type thing. It was more a feeling of, like you said, this intuitive feeling like you wanted to just get to Israel and maybe understand Judaism a little bit better? The thought I had was, I want to see what it means to be Jewish. I don't know why. That was just the intuitive thought that I had, that I had tried other religions. My search was not complete. I'm still a person who wants more spirituality, I guess is the best way to say it. And while I was happily starting a career as a therapist, that didn't seem to be the whole answer either. And the idea was go to Israel to see what it means to be Jewish. I guess I must have had a sense that there was more to Judaism than I had been exposed to. That was the pull. And what I knew was that I didn't want to go for a short two-week trip. 
I don't even think there was birthright at the time. I didn't know anything about, I don't think there was, this is the 1980s or maybe I didn't know about it, but I just said to myself, I want to go. I want to live on a kibbutz, which I imagine this. And I just said, I want to live since I can afford to do it. I can keep my apartment in New York and stay for as long as I like a few months. I quit my job. So no job was waiting for me, but I had a home to come back to at any time that I needed to come back. But I wanted the experience of living on a kibbutz and learning Hebrew more, going to an ulpan. And that's all I knew. So the way you're describing it by going on a kibbutz and learning Hebrew, it's not a religious experience you're having yet. So we're on Saturday to Shabbos where you're thinking, oh, I went to Israel and now all of a sudden I'm on this trajectory to becoming religious. But that's not the early experience in Israel, right? So what's the early period like? And then how does it evolve over time while you're there? Yeah, I didn't I didn't know that I was seeking religion. I just wanted to see what it means to be Jewish. So I wanted to be close to doing agriculture. I got off the plane without the plan ahead of time, went to the kibbutz agency and said, can you please send me to a kibbutz where I can both do farming and opan? And that was Kibbutz Magan Michael. That was the one that was available. They had an opan starting that Monday. I went up to, it was near Haifa, just south of Haifa, I believe, between Kaisari and Haifa. And I go on this beautiful kibbutz and start working in the banana fields and go to opan. And, and it's a very secular kibbutz. But I still didn't think anything was missing. I'm having a great time. I met a bunch of great young people, Americans from all over the country who were there. And I was having a wonderful time. One Friday morning, a friend named Ronit, who happened to be Israeli, and I had met her in that workshop in New York that taught me about following your intuition. She showed up. She said, I made plans for us to go to a Moshav, a different place, for Shabbat. Okay, I knew there was a Shabbat, of course, and on the kibbutz, they lit candles and then everybody went home and watched TV or still worked on Saturday. It wasn't really a full Shabbos experience. So I trusted Ronit and I left with her that Friday and we went to Moshav Modi'in and we were set up in a guest house on Moshav Modi'in and we changed into our Shabbos clothes and we went over to the little shul where the women were lighting candles and the men were getting ready to daven marav and Kabbalat Shabbat. Everybody was going to daven there. I remember it was beautifully painted and very hippie-like colors. And there was this rabbi named Shlomo Kabach who was leading the services. (laughs) I I had not known what to expect, but from candle lighting through Shabbat until Havdalah, I literally was crying so much, just feeling that I had finally found what I had been seeking my whole life. I had no idea how spiritual Judaism was. So you have this experience, but at the same time, you're on a secular kibbutz. I'm wondering if you start seeing this like huge disconnect between, well, what did I just experience versus the life I'm currently living in Israel? And how do you make sense of these two worlds? I soaked up what I could that Shabbat. I knew right away that I had to leave the kibbutz and not waste any more time and that I wanted to learn about Torah, Shabbos, and more about Orthodox Judaism. So I went back to the kibbutz to say I'm leaving. I I didn't have any obligation to stay. I was there as a volunteer on my own. And my friend Ronit and I found a seminary. And mind you, we were 27. I think she was close to my age. But we ended up at the, you know, the seminaries where all the 18-year-old kids go for their gap years. I don't know how, we didn't know one from another, but we somehow chose this Rav Cook Seminary in Kiryat Moshe, Jerusalem. The head of it, the lady was very, very nice and said we could come and join classes and just sit there because we were just discovering Torah Judaism. This kibbutz people told me I was crazy 
and I was going to be brainwashed and I shouldn't do that. But I said, thank you for your opinion. It's been wonderful being here, but I need to go do this. And I left and I just went and sat in the seminary and stayed in their dorm for several weeks until I felt I had enough of a sense of what Orthodox Judaism was about and Torah Judaism, you know, I learned, I remember learning for the first time a lot about holidays and just following the Parsha and the Chumash and just being introduced to the main aspects of authentic Judaism. And uh, once I knew that, it's like my answer was there. I said I wanted to go to Israel to find out what it means to be Jewish. I found out. And then I felt I could come back to America to continue living a Jewish life. So when you're in Israel and you're learning about Orthodox Judaism, the story could have ended there where you're just thinking, I always wanted to know what this is about. I don't necessarily want to be Orthodox, but something obviously hit you to the point that you said, I want to go beyond just learning about this. During your time in Israel, are you thinking all about this family you have back home? You mentioned the small pocket of your family that was Orthodox. You're thinking, hey, I'm actually learning about all the things that I'll bet these cousins have been living all these years. Yeah, they were the first people I called when I came back to the States. <laughs> The first people I called. I probably called my parents, who had by that time had moved to California, actually. Once I told them I was safely back in the States, of course, they were very nervous about me being in Israel all that time. I called my cousins in Passaic and I said, can I come for Shabbos? Because I didn't know what else to do or where else to go. And they said, of course. And they had a son close to my age. They had four kids, and one of their kids was close to my age. And I hung out with him a lot. He was still single and at home. And we walked to shul together, and I spent quite a few Shabbos with them. And soon after, since I was between jobs, I knew I had to get another job. I wasn't independently wealthy and I wanted to go back to social work. I moved myself to Brooklyn. My apartment was in Dobbs Ferry in Westchester. That's where I chose to get a beautiful little apartment when my parents moved to California. Or I think I moved out before that because I didn't want to live at home anymore. But I got myself an apartment on Ocean Parkway and a job at OHEL Children's Home and Family Services. And that was my next social work job. Now, you mentioned your parents moving to California. Are you having any conversations during this time about, hey, you remember the kid who left from New York? I'm a little bit different now that I've come back. What are those conversations like? They were a little challenging. My mother and I spoke often, and sure, we spoke more than once a week, but we certainly spoke on Saturdays. I do remember asking her to please, could we just switch to Sunday? She had a hard time at first. She had a hard time throughout the steps of me becoming more and more observant, but we maintained a close relationship all the way through it. She did accept the changes. She was mostly afraid that it would come between us and we wouldn't be as close. And so when I assured her that it wouldn't, I would still find a way to eat eat with her and be with her and uh, we'd work it out. But that this was really important to me that I just, it's not an option. I'm going to keep Shabbos. I'm going to keep kosher. I'm changing my life. I just knew I wanted to live it. I wanted God in my life So I just proceeded in that path. And I can see how the move to Brooklyn gives you what you need in terms of wanting to keep Shabbos and eating kosher, because now you're going to be surrounded by like-minded people. I would think at that point, you're saying there's one more ingredient that I need is a spouse to share my life with. Now, we heard this story from Greg's perspective, how you came into his life, but now it's time to hear the real truth because we want to know what the wife has to say. So how does Greg come into your life and, and how do you build a life together? Both of our stories are true. It's just from each perspective. You know, we, we love to tell it together. But it is pretty fascinating that we were sort of in the same place with similar backgrounds, the same reform backgrounds, and then both wanting more. Yes. So once I got settled in Brooklyn, had my new job, and a year went by, six months to a year went by, and I was 
just exploring. Of course, I was dating and I did now know that I really wanted a Jewish husband and a husband who would be willing to keep Shabbos and kosher with me. I was exploring different synagogues and making friends in Brooklyn. I was really in between Borough Park and Flatbush, so I had lots of options and was making friends at Ohel. But I continued to go to programs up at the Karlbach Shul on the Upper West Side because I loved Rabbi Karlbach so much, the songs and the music and hanging out there. I think I was going for programs. So one time I went there and met a guy on my own who asked me on a date to a Jewish music concert. I loved music always. And I went on this date to a huge Jewish concert in Queens with him. There were several bands playing, starting with Avram Rosenblum's Diaspora Yeshiva Band and, but actually, they were the main event, and one of the warm-up bands was a smaller and less-known group called Kolos that Greg Wall was in. I couldn't even see him. I was sitting so far away in this huge high school. I just loved the music. And sure enough, two or three weeks later, I saw an advertisement that Kolos was playing in a small club called First on First, First Avenue and First Street in New York City in the East Village. I didn't care for the guy that took me to that first concert. I didn't go out with him again, but I wanted to hear this band again. And I literally went by myself. And it's interesting because, you know, a girl who wants to get married is always thinking about it and always looking for a guy. And they say, well, you'll meet him when you least expect it. And this was one night that I really wasn't going out to look for a guy. I just wanted to hear the music and I couldn't find anyone to go with me. It was November 19th. It was raining and cold. My friends were not available. I had a brother living. My one and only brother happened to be living in Brooklyn at the time. He didn't want to go or couldn't go. So I went by myself. I just took myself, drove my Mazda into this village, parked the car, went in, sat at the bar by myself. Now I'm really enjoying this band because I'm up close. And I started checking out the band members and staring at the saxophonist so hard that he walked over to me on a break <laughs> and said, why do I feel like I'm supposed to meet you? Did he tell you that in his interview? I don't remember. Sure. And I said, I don't know, but I'm happy to meet you. <laughs> and we shook hands and he took my number on a nap. He took my number on a napkin and gave me his card. He said, if I lose the napkin, here's my card. But I knew I wouldn't call him. I was traditional at this point. I want to be pursued by a guy who knows what he wants. I was done with playing games. But sure enough, he did call me the next day. And we went jogging in Brooklyn under the Verrazano Bridge and talked a lot. And to meet a guy with a similar background, a cool musician, you know, who liked to jog, which we both enjoyed, and was putting on tefillin and saying the Shema every day, praying for a wife was what he told me, even though he wasn't at all close to keeping Shabbos or kosher yet, I knew there was potential, you know, not every secular guy, no one that I went to school with or college with ever put on tefillin. So I thought this guy's got potential. So, and I liked him a lot. Something that Greg and I talked about during his interview, when you're in the entertainment industry, like a musician, Friday night, Saturday are like big, big performing days. And we talked a lot about this choice you have to make as you get further and further in religion. Are you going to give up performing on those nights? Where is he holding at the point that you meet him? And are you having conversations about what is it going to look like if you're going to both be like fully orthodox, what that might mean for his career? Yeah, I know. He was completely still working on Shabbos at that time but said that he was open to and interested in keeping Shabbos and kosher. And down the road, he knew that meant, we both knew it meant giving up working on Shabbos, playing. But it, we didn't worry about it then. We wait. It was really literally 10 years before he stopped working on Shabbos. We met November of 1988. 
We married in May of 89. And for 10 years, we lived in Jersey City, taking two steps forward and one step back in our growth in Judaism. Starting to keep Shabbos and kosher. We had our first two kids. I started driving on Shabbos just to take them to a synagogue, a conservative synagogue, where they could have other kids to play with because we were only in walking distance to a very old little shtibel that had only old people. And uh, so that 10 years was a process. But when we moved to Livingston in 1999, and that New Year's was the big Y2K going, you know, and it was Friday night. I don't know if you remember, Friday night, December 31st, 1999 was the first time he didn't play on New Year's Eve. He had a band that made lots of money on New Year's Eve, but he said no to that. But in July of 99, six months before that, New Year's was when we were really 100% completely Shomer Shabbos and kosher. So maybe he had stopped playing before. I don't remember. He probably stopped playing before that New Year's, but it was still a big deal that he didn't play on that New Year's. And we just trusted that, that it would be okay. He had other work, lots of other work. He was, you know, Jewish weddings happen mostly during the week and he was doing those and he was teaching in schools and he was an artist in residence and we just trusted that things would work out and they certainly did. Now, you mentioned this 10-year period where it was two steps forward, one step back. I can remember for myself this feeling of maybe I can straddle both worlds because I grew up in this secular world. I still have a lot of friends in that world. There's a lot of things that I'm used to doing on Friday and Saturday in that world. I'm also growing is there maybe some way to combine these two worlds? But it always comes to a head at some point where you feel like I'm either in or out on what it means to be orthodox. So it seems like you were on that slow pace over those 10 years trying to figure that piece out before you finally came to that point of, if we're really going to do this, we have to really do it. Yeah. I don't think there was any doubts about doing it. And I do think that gradually my non-Jewish friends, secular friends, I mean, some things, I guess, fell by the wayside, although I was working in the secular world as a therapist. I had a couple of jobs and clinics throughout those 10 years and always enjoyed them and still enjoyed interacting with all kinds of people. It didn't seem to be a conflict. It just seemed like, and that's why modern orthodoxy, I suppose, was the right path and was a beautiful path because it can combine both. It's, you know, it's Torah in the modern world. Torah was beginning to be first and foremost in informing how we decided what to eat and how to spend our time. But and what synagogue to go to, et cetera. But still, it didn't seem to be a problem in my secular life, both with work and even maintaining some old friendships. And Greg certainly had lots of musician friends of all types that we always enjoyed. But they came along for the ride. I mean, this was it. We'd invite them to our house on Friday night. We just stopped traveling on Shabbos and things worked out. And then given how both of you were raised and the journey you were on, what was it like for your kids as you were raising them? How did you explain what your backgrounds were and how you were choosing to raise them? It flowed very smoothly. They, both of our older kids started, they were in a secular preschool and our daughter started public elementary school before we moved to Livingston. But in second grade, she was transferred from the secular public school to yeshiva. The biggest challenge for her was to start learning Hebrew at uh, whatever, she was six or six, going on seven years old. But the teachers were wonderful there and they helped her transition. And yeah, they never questioned or complained. We're not going to eat, you know, in any old pizzeria anymore. We're going to switch to kosher pizza. Of course, Livingston had the best pizza shop anyway, so that was fine. And they understood their grandparents were not religious. I guess they understood that, but it didn't seem to be any much of an issue. We, we figured out our rabbi was wonderful at um, helping guide us to how to introduce 
being kosher to our parents, to have shalom between us and our parents, to gradually just, you know, move to paper plates and buy a few new pots and pans in their house and and just ease them into the whole procedure. And I don't, I think it was really seamless and flawless, you know, aside from every new t- time I see my mother, she'd say, oh, you can't squeeze a sponge either or whatever it is, <laughs> a job is, you know, but she accepted it. She saw as long as we could still be close and she knew her grandchildren. Uh, our kids have always understood our backgrounds, I think. And we're just so happy and they're probably pretty happy too that we figured it out early enough in their lives that they got to go to day school and learn everything about Torah and Judaism younger in life. Because for me, first of all, I I missed a lot and I have not been able to really catch up at all. I I feel very uh, a little sad about what I missed in a Jewish education. I'm looking forward to retirement, to to going back to, to school, to day school. My husband, on the other hand, has done a remarkable job of making up for lost time and learning uh, so much so that he became an Orthodox rabbi. It's incredible. And he did that to keep up with the kids who were in day school. So it worked out well. Now, you mentioned Livingston, but as I recall from my conversation with Greg, that's not where you are in present day. So now take us into where your life is today. Well, as I mentioned, he was fortunate enough to sit in a kollel in Livingston that we believe was designed just for him, his benefit. It came from Lakewood because of his schedule as a musician. He had time during the day to study. He finally, he joined a program, got smicha. And when he got smicha, again, it was really just to learn and to, and to, because we were both so excited about learning Torah and this huge education that we had missed out on earlier in our lives. But as soon as he got smicha, a friend called from New York City and said, I have a shul for you, Greg, you could be a rabbi. And wasn't really planning to be a shul rabbi, but that worked out for three years. And so we commuted uh, on Shabbos. We went to the city and holidays, but we still stayed in Livingston. That job fizzled out after three years. From that job, though, we found out that we enjoyed being a rabbi in Robinson and uh, for the right community. So someone that we knew in the city connected us to Westport, Connecticut, and he applied for and got the job here in Westport. So in 2013, we took the job uh, in Westport. We said, we're not going to commute anymore. Next time, if he gets another job as a rabbi, we need to live in the community and really be part of the community 100%. And so we moved to Westport, and we've been here for the last 11 years as the rabbi in Robinson of a very cool shul called Beit Chaverim. So when your husband gets smicha and then gets this opportunity, you take on this new title as Rebetzin, which comes with your husband landing this role. So what are some of the things you're doing within your community? I think it was a natural transition for me because of being a social worker and enjoying people so much anyway. So that part was easy. Uh, from what I understood, Rebetzins can choose to do as much or as little in a community. There are some who are fantastic scholars who teach a lot and participate a lot and some who choose to be low-key and maybe just host at home. I'm somewhere in between. When um, In my early years, I, I always love this program that NJOP has, the National Jewish Outreach Program for the Crash Course in Hebrew Reading. For some reason, I took to that a long, long time ago. That was even in Jersey City, I think, when I started to become observant. So it became a favorite activity to teach people who want to learn Hebrew, Hebrew. I didn't do it as much in Livingston, I don't think. But when I came to Westport, that's been something that I've spent a lot of time doing. I have i don't know how many tens of people have spent time with me and, and the wonderful materials of NJOP and learning to read and understand Hebrew. And then when we first got here, uh, I was asked to help the women learn how to daven more because they really, even our shul is the house of friends, Beit Chavirim, the place where everybody's welcome. 
But many people come because it's so warm and welcoming and small, not because they identify as Orthodox. And so they didn't. Ha- a lot of our members haven't had backgrounds in Jewish education either. And so I was, you know, I've been one step ahead, uh, hopefully one or uh, small step ahead and just teaching them what I was starting to learn, which was how to pray to God, both to continue that informal dialogue that I started early in my life, but also formally with the prayer book. And we started what's called the Women's Spirituality Group. I think it's now going to go down in history because it's been going for almost 11 years and we've covered all kinds of topics from davening to Chumash to holidays to Rosh Chodesh. We, the Parsha now we've been doing to Amuna. We meet every week. We met in person in shul until the pandemic hit. And then we switched to Zoom on Fridays at 12. And we keep going for the last four years. It's been on Zoom on Fridays. So that's been my involvement. I just enjoy the time that I can spend with people talking about Hashem. And one theme that has come through loud and clear in your interview and also with Greg, is that individually and also as a couple, you both are seekers and want to grow. So the last question I want to ask you when you have that mindset, what's next for you? How are you going to continue to grow both individually and as a couple? Mm, Well, you may know that he's stepping down from the pulpit this June 30th. We are going to move on to another chapter. And both of us, I think, just want to spend time on our own learning and growing. He teaches very, very well. He wants to continue teaching. He's going to combine teaching Judaism with instructing people on how to scuba dive if they're interested in that. We're going to do boat trips. So if you know anybody who's interested in Judaism and diving or water sports, that's going to be the next thing. I'm going to do group therapy sessions on the boats. (laughs) But really, my dream is to spend more and more time with my own learning. I've been peripherally involved with the program called the OU Women's Initiative. The OU has this women's subdivision now that's so strong, so incredible so full of amazing scholars and scholarship and teaching, and I haven't had the time to keep up with learning. I want to learn Tanakh. I want to learn just more and, and daven more. I'm not, I don't have the time to even daven as much as I want to. So just personal growth, and then hopefully whoever crosses our path, we can pass off some more inspiration to be close to God and Judaism. And it seems to me in this day and age, it's the only way to find solace in a very challenging world. And I have to say, thank you for the OU Women's Initiative shout out, since this is an OU podcast Saturday to Shabbos, so we oh. appreciate you mentioning it. And I also just want to say to our listeners, go back now and re-listen to Rabbi Greg Wall's podcast from April of 2022, then listen to Rona, and then you'll have a sense of where they came from individually, how they came together, and how beautiful their lives are today. So Rona, I just want to say thank you for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much, Jeff. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at taklismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.